Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Deputy Personal Finance Editor Kate Bealey and joining me today are Personal Finance Writer Emma Adjaman and on the line we've got Adrian Lowcock, Head of Investing at Architas. So today we're going to take a look at financials funds and ask whether investing in an unloved sector like this could be a better idea than following the crowd. We're also going to take a look at a reader's predicament to do with a vanishing ETF and we're going to catch up on the latest news surrounding the lifetime ISA. So first, we're going to look at financials funds. Now, this is an area which many investors don't want to touch with a barge pole. It was obviously beaten up in the financial crisis and many banks have yet to fully recover. Low interest rates also squeeze bank margins. But Emma, some commentators are saying now's a great time to look at financials. Why is that? Yeah, you're right, Kate. And it's and it's for the reason that they are so beaten up. Um, it's, a, it's a contrarian opportunity, really. Because they are the least popular global equity sector at the minute, they are just looking incredibly cheap. And the the issue is, are they so cheap that actually further negative news um, is not going to have that much of an effect? And so th- there's an idea that actually downside risk is very is very little. Um, and conversely, on you know, if this if the sector gets some good news, um, which might come in the form of U.S. interest rates um, being raised, for example, I mean, there's discussion about that, but I mean, let's say that they. But that did come to fruition. That could give a big boost to to the area. Okay, and so that's all kind of sentiment based. Um, are banks actually in better health than we think? Well, we spoke to the manager of Polar Capital Global Financials Trust, and he thinks that they are in better shape. Um, he was saying generally U.S. banks are doing quite well, and um, many European banks are also much better capitalised than they were. Um, you know, before the financial crisis. And he's saying some of the European banks are yielding 5 to 6% and are growing their dividends and starting to pay those out. So he, he definitely thinks that there are opportunities in some banking um, sectors, but he's, he's steering clear of southern European banks, um, you know, particularly Spanish, Greek and Italian banks, because he still thinks that there are major capital adequacy issues attached to them. Okay. And you did just mention US interest rates, obviously interest rates, central banks being a common theme that we that we discuss. What what is it about that relationship between interest rates and bank balance sheets which which makes this so important for this sector? Well, you're right. This is one of the main worries that investors have about the sector. Um because in many places there are very low interest rates and in some places negative interest rates. Um, and that's basically bad news for, for banks because it erodes their profit margin. Basically, the lower interest rates are the less money banks are able to make on the free funds um, that they hold. But if rates were to rise, for example, in the US, as as we've talked about as a possibility, um, banks would be able to make more money on deposits that they hold and this would sort of flow into their into their margins. So it would be a, a boost to their profits. And that's because they would be passing that on to you and me, I guess, mm. with our accounts, right? Um, okay, so we have obviously just been talking about banks there, but in fact, financials obviously encompasses much more than just banks, doesn't it? What what else might you invest in? Yeah, you're right. Um, banks tend to kind of hoggle the, the headlines. <laughs> the limelight. Yeah, um, but there are actually... You know, lots of different areas to the sector. Um, It includes insurance companies, reinsurance companies, exchanges, credit cards companies, um, financial technology companies, a new sort of breed of companies that are out there, leasing companies and asset managers. So there's a real spread of um, of, of subsectors in this area. Okay, and you've obviously had a look at some funds here. I mean, just in general, 
what have you seen in terms of the kind of returns you can make? Because some of them look quite high, um, according to to what you've researched. Over the five-year period, um, we've had some funds which have returned, you know, 150. That was the, the best-performing fund that looked at Polar Capital Global Insurance, um, returned 154% over a five-year period. But other funds have also done very well. FP Crux European Special Situations returned 110%. And Schrader Recovery, which isn't a fund focused just on financials, but it looks at um, deep value stocks and has quite a hefty amount in financials. Over the five years, it's returned 104%. So yes, okay. there's the various, you know, quite good returns in this area. Okay, interesting. So, Adrian, what do you think? Would you invest in financials now, or, or are you one of the barge pole <laughs> investors? <laughs> so, so, I think what you've got to think is first, um, you know, when you're looking at the returns that have been had, it is important to sort of think of those as historic returns because a lot of that uh, rebound in financials was following the financial crisis. Financials, I mean, they do look cheap on uh, on some measures, um, but it, whilst the sort of global economic recovery seems to sort of lurch from sort of recession to growth back and back again. The, the, they're going to be quite volatile. So I think if you're going to invest in financials, you do need to take a very long-term perspective in this. And that's, you know, five years, probably more like 10 years plus to actually get it. And and don't necessarily expect to see the, the sort of rebounds that you saw for post-financial crisis coming into, into into financials and particularly into the banking sector at the moment. And it's going to be about stock selection. Um, whilst um, a lot of the banks are, are in much better shape than they were during the financial crisis, there are still sort of banks with issues, and um, particularly in sort of southern Europe and in Italy, we've got still issues with the banks there, whereas in um, northern Europe and, and, and Scandinavia and the US, the banks are look, look, look a lot more down that road for recovery. And in this case, case of Scandinavia, they, they sort of managed to avoid the financial crisis, having had one back in the 1990s themselves. So, yeah, so it's, it's quite kind of different areas or distinct risks in different areas, do you think? I mean, what what areas do you look the riskiest? You mentioned Southern European banks. Are there other areas of financials that are risky too? Or? Uh, so Southern European banks, um, particularly Italy, are, are sort of perhaps the risk. There's still sort of issues over the the financial strength of, 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 of German and French banks as well. They're not fully out of the woods yet. Um, and it's, you know, it, it, I guess the issue is is really about whether or not there's a, a, something that just triggers a, a bit of touch paper and, and, and the risk and the fear comes back in into that sector, which will add huge amounts of volatility. At the moment, we're in a sort of, not a, not a risk, uh, probably in what you call a risk-off phase, uh, a risk, not a risk-off phase, but not a risk-on phase, but people aren't factoring in the high levels of, of risk that are perhaps in these sectors, so they could be volatility. Um, we don't know what um, negative interest rates, what that actually ha- means for uh, not just uh, the the economy, but also financials. They're not they're not really uh, going to help financials make more money. So further stimulus from uh, possibly the Bank of Japan later on this month, and and possibly Europe following that, um, we could see interest rates go even more negative, which could have a big uh, effect on how banks make money because they've always made money from effectively being able to charge a higher interest rate. And as rates get more negative, that really eats into their profitability. So, we, so you may have to see actually how that really will plays out. That's still early days at the moment. Yeah, and then we've obviously got the not small issue of Brexit. I mean, a big 
issue for UK banks is, is an end to passporting arrangements, which mean that they can operate throughout Europe. I mean, will, will that be a big issue for UK financials specifically? Um, I mean, that's going to be a big issue for the institutions. So this isn't necessarily the retail banks like Lloyd's, but it will be more so perhaps the HSBCs and Barclays of this world. Um, and it's very much an unknown at the moment. We haven't even started the negotiations on Brexit, and we don't know what the passporting will mean. But it basically it, it has a big impact on London because a lot of international banks uh, and financial centres use London as their gateway to the rest of Europe. And if London can no longer offer that, then they've got to set up uh, offices and business relationships in, in, in Europe. Now, you know, realistically, this is going to be a, a sort of two to three year process as Brexit at the very least. And during that time, we, you know, there will be sort of swings in, in this outlook. And it may be that, you know, what what is sort of speculated one day becomes completely the opposite the next day. So it's it's a risk to factor in, but regulatory risk and, and, and this sort of thing is, is part and parcel of of. of sort of investing in global um, sectors and global businesses. So I think it will be factored in and way over the sector for some time, but I don't think it's it's a it's not one that is realized at the moment. And some banks are already doing something about it and just make, making a decision and actually setting up offices in mainland Europe. Okay. And yeah, and I guess as you as you said banks are obviously not alone in in any kind of Brexit impact whatever that may be. So we've just talked about kind of different regions, different asset classes. What are the options in terms of the actual funds you can invest in, Emma? Well, it's a specialist area, Kate. So there's fewer funds in this area. There's about a dozen or so. And there's only one investment trust in this area, which is the one that we spoke to, Polar Capital Global Financials Trust. Um, But yeah, you know, some of those uh, funds that we looked at are included in the magazine on the website. So have a look at them there. Okay, And um, Adrian, what's your favourite in this area? So I think um, if you're going for a specialist uh, sort of financials, Jupiter Financial Opportunities Fund, which is managed by a gentleman called Guy de Blonay, has a basically invest solely in financial companies. Um, this isn't a portfolio that just invests in banks, and it's not necessarily a high beta strategy all the time. So they're looking for high yield, growth, or restructuring businesses. That's a very specialist fund. So, you know, it is for somebody who's perhaps willing to take a bit more risk. And um, I'd probably only suggest, you know, maybe a small amount of a portfolio into that, of say 5% or so. Um, for alternative strategies, you could look at the Schroeder Recovery and FP Cruise European Special Situations that Emma mentioned. Both don't target um, financial specifically, but they're looking for well-run businesses or, or, or deep value businesses that that are perhaps offer a good recovery situation or good long-term growth. So they, they have exposure to financials, but it's a good way of getting an indirect access to that market. Okay. Um, well, yeah, for more information on all of these financial funds and exactly what they hold and what your options are, have a look um, at the magazine this week. But now we're going to move on to look at vanishing ETFs. Might sound more exciting than it actually is, but this week, one of our readers got in touch to say that her Deutsche Bank short gilt ETF had disappeared. She said she'd only been informed of it when the ETF stopped trading. So we had a look into this and found that, in fact, Deutsche Bank had delisted its entire gilt range. Now, delisting is not uncommon but maybe this process and exactly what happened here was so we had a look into it firstly adrian what what is an etf delisting how common is it and, and what happens so um etfs which are exchange traded funds are listed like any other company on the london stock exchange for example and one of their attractions is they're relatively easy to build and put onto the exchange so they can be listed quite quickly and delisted quite quickly and as this market grows 
and, and has been growing quite rapidly over the last 10, 10 years or so. Different companies will list different types of ETFs in investing in anything from gilts to shares uh, to bonds and, and uh, so commodities, which are ETCs. Um, but some will appeal to investors at different times. So as they sort of get large or shrink in size, then um, they become commercially less viable for the for the group to actually list them. So delisting is, is part and parcel of the nature of these types of investments. Okay. Um, I mean, do you think we're going to see more of it as price competition intensifies? So I, the issue is is really in this guilt space because we've had another cut in interest rates um, by Mark Garner in the Bank of England, and and it looks like a further cut is possible this year. Then um, it, it's very hard for for these products to make any money on on quarter percent base rate or what could be possible possibly 0.1 percent base rate by the end of the year, unless they're very very large their fees are going to really eat into into any performance returns and effectively investors are, will be buying something that will you know effectively yield next to zero so it it is likely you'll see the smaller players in the in the guild market uh, perhaps just disappear because they can't they can't make profit on it and investors can't get a decent return on it mm, and i mean so what you did mention size there what what's the best way to avoid investing in something which is likely to delist do you think um, so size is, is is a big factor. Look 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 for who the main player in a particular market is. Now, not you know, not all ETFs are going to be, um, not all companies are going to operate the same um, market. So some are going to be more successful than others. But look for size and, um, and 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 reputation in that space. So there are some very good players in each bit of the section of the market, and, and size will matter because effectively, you know, the costs and fees that they're charging are going to be uh, you know. Effectively, 0.05 basis points are going to be very, very low. So, they scale scales what matters, and that really does count a lot, particularly in the gill market. Okay, and so another issue, apart from being disappointed that she can no longer use um, this ETF, our reader was very annoyed that she didn't kind of find out about it until the ETF had already stopped trading. Now, we had a look, and Deutsche Bank had put a notice out to the market on the 29th of July, which was one month before the last trading day. So ideally, the platform's brokers should have received the notice, pass it on, Adrian, how how do customers normally find out about this kind of thing if they're using a platform? Um, yeah, so usually you'd you'd expect the platform to give you a send you a corporate action notice, which is basically um, whenever there's uh, a business making an action that affects the shares or the business, they they send out a communication, and you usually get that by email these days. Um, so that that should really follow the same process. You should get a communication that sort of says the intention to delist this product. At, you know, said date, um, and also whether, and, and then usually, depending on what is going on and what happens, uh, there may be an opportunity to trade that share, uh, or, or in this case, an ETF, uh, before the the, the, the wind-up date. Um, however, you know, there are instances where you know corporate actions happen very quickly, and shares and ETFs can get suspended quite quickly onto the mar- on the market. So there's not always that opportunity to actually trade an investment. And as soon as that um, corporate action is announced. Then uh, the market adjusts its 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 price for the shares, you know, to reflect that corporate action and, and what risk it may entail and in, involve. Mm. So, I mean, is is one way if you're, I mean, should you monitor the RNS feeds of your companies or just kind of trust that you know sometimes this will happen and you just assume that you'll hear about it through a broker? I, I 
so I think if you're holding sort of mainstream shares, then you know you probably should be trusting your broker to be able to provide that information. If you're holding ETFs, and particularly because there are, are quite a wide range of these products, and some of them are quite complicated, and they can be unforeseen risks involved in them, I think it's worth you just taking a little bit extra time and care on that, and just monitoring those, um, and 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 you know whilst you perhaps get more comfortable with it, and also just monitoring, you know, what is your broker actually telling you as well. Mm, okay. And just finally on this topic, our reader was actually shorting the gilt market through this ETF, effectively betting against the performance of, of gilt using a short ETF. And with one of these, you essentially earn the opposite return of the market you track. So if it goes up by one, you go down by one. Um, it's obviously quite a high kind of risk product. I mean, Adrian, what do you think of them generally? Are they appropriate for most people or not? Um, I think it's when you're trying to short a market, um, what you have to sort of factor in is is the potential to effectively lose a lot of money very quickly. Um, and even if the underlying asset can be quite uh, low volatility, you know these things can be quite sensitive to movements in the market. And the, and and you know if it's just a one to one for one short, so if it, as you said, it just goes up one, you lose. Uh, one or vice versa that's that's not too bad but some of these have a massive multiple they can be sort of two or three times volatility of the underlying investment so you can make or lose money very quickly and there's also usually a cost so the longer you hold it there's a sort of variation in in the uh, performance of that investment relative to the underlying asset that you're tracking so these aren't straightforward and they are potentially riskier than people think so i, I think you do have to step very carefully and, and and really do your research before you actually make a commitment to investing in one of these products and not all two products look alike or behave identically either so you have to sort of really know and understand the one you're picking mm, definitely do your research Okay, finally, we are going to move on to the Lifetime ISA. Now, obviously, we've, we've got so many different kinds of ISA launched by the government in recent years. Emma, what, which is this one? Refresh our memories. <laughs> um, so this is the Lifetime ISA, known as LISA for short. Um, it's the new individual, individual savings account, which the government announced in March this year, that it would be bringing in to help young people, those aged between 18 and 40, save for their first property or towards retirement. Um, and the good thing about this product is that you get, the savers are able to get pretty good government bonus um, when they save into an, a lighter. So for every £4 they put in, the government will put in £1 and um, you're able to save up to £4,000 a year. OK, and when's it launching? Um, it's coming into force this April 2017. Okay. Um, But much of the industry is taking issue with something in particular around its exit fee, isn't it? What what is that fee and what's it designed to do? Yes, that's right. The issue of Eliza is that you can only take out your money for very specific reasons, either to buy a house or after age 60, or if you become terminally ill. And if you take it out for any other reason, you'll be charged a 25% exit fee. Um, and this will include the government bonus element, as well as any interest or growth that's, that's come through that bonus. And it also incorporates an additional charge of 5% that the government's added in, within that. And so what, why is that charge specifically being criticised or what are commentators saying about it? Yeah, the main, the main reason is because this additional 5% charge, which has been added in, is going to be applied to the whole of um, the pot. So that's going to include any investment growth that the individual has also accrued on their own contributions, as opposed to just the government bonus element of it. And um, AJ Bell, the broker, worked out that 
if somebody had saved the maximum amount for 10 years and then decided to take out the money for a different purpose, they would lose 45% of their investment growth, which is quite wow. a hefty um, amount. So out of a total pot of around 62,000, 15,000, um, 15,500 would go to pay the exit fee. And so, yeah, just, you know, some commentators just feel that that's just far too much money. Mm. Um, Adrian, what, what do you think of the lifetime ISA generally? Do you think it's a good thing or n- not helpful? It's, it's one of those things. You, you sort of, the, the, the reasons the government brought it in are quite laudable. And, and, it, and it, you know, there's clearly a need to sort of encourage people to save and help people save for their deposits for their homes and for retirement. I think one of the biggest difficulties of it is it's made ices which were relatively straightforward and simple very complicated and and just hearing emma go through it all you can you can sort of get that that sense and and my my other concern is when when people are saving and investing they tend to sort of have uh, quite often specific goals in mind and saving for a deposit for a house is is one goal and saving for retirement is another goal but they're quite contrarian goals one is usually shorter term more immediate and the other retirement is much more in the future so it's going to be quite difficult for people to manage it and i think it's just you know the the objective is 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 nice and i think just the execution is probably needing a bit of tightening up mm. and in fact there's, there's been quite a lot of news flow on on lifetime ices generally since since we went to press and kind of in the coming months and since we did go to press we've heard that the bonus is going to be paid monthly what what's that mean for savers adrian so, so basically, um, instead of getting it perhaps at the end of the year or or, uh, or later, you get the bonus uh, sort of every month. So basically, you get that uh, um, cash injection from the government each month, which means you can get that invested quickly. So on the one factor, that means that that bonus is going to sort of grow sooner and quickly, and then you can benefit from the from the growth and reinvest any income earned. So that that helps boost your returns, and that's going to be quite significant because the amount that you get from the government isn't a small sum. Secondly, and this is going to be really useful for people who are looking to use it to buy a property, is you can actually see how much money you've got in your LISA, and th- then you can work with your uh, with your lender to actually uh, see how much money you can borrow and how much deposit you've actually got. So that's going to be a real good sort of practical visible thing that you have. And that's sort of quite contrary with the uh, buy-to-let ISAs, which uh, you get the bonus at the very end and uh, has to be applied for. Um, it isn't transparent and visible. And, and I think that's a, that's a good thing that the LISA has, is actually getting that bonus in into the pot and get it working for you as well is really good. Mm, okay. And what are we seeing then in terms of who's actually launched it or planning to offer it, Emma? Um, so Hargreaves, Lansdowne and Nutmeg have both confirmed that they'll be launching it and they'll be ready in time for April next year. A couple of other providers that we know have, d- have said that they will definitely be launching it are Fidelity and Standard Life. But they said that they're probably not going to be able to launch it in time for next April. And there are likely to be a few other providers in that situation, but yet to be confirmed. However, one provider nationwide has confirmed that they're, they're definitely not going to be offering it. Okay, um, so as as I said, we're kind of getting news on this all the time, so we're definitely going to be keeping on top of it and hopefully returning to it either next week or the week after, so stay tuned. And that's all we've got time for today. So to read more about financials funds, vanishing ETFs and the Lifetime ISA, pick up the issue this week and otherwise have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.